Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to part one of the Love Tennis podcast. I was going to say this is a bonus edition, but it's not because we owe you one from the weekend. Apologies for the late arrival in your feeds but we thought we would wait until we had the final four set in both the men's and the women's draw. I'm going to be joined by George Belshaw for the first half hour today. Calvin Beton will be here later as well. But we're going to start with the women's draw. Ash Barty, the number one seed up against Madison Keys, and Danielle Collins, number 27 seed, which I always think is absurd that that still exists, uh, but that's not the topic for today. Uh, up against Igor Sviontek, the number seven seed. George, Ash Barty's progress to this stage has been quite remarkable. She's picked up, I think, two, three bagels or two bagels already. She hasn't even been pushed to a tie break in any of her matches. She's not necessarily had an easy run either. Uh, how impressive has this been? Very, yes. Um, I... I hate to frame everything via fantasy tennis, but Barty, I was looking at, I was like, oh, the only thing that bothers me about Barty's draw is Naomi Osaka. That was the thing that really put me off her. Um, But other than that, every other player in the world, I'd back Barty against pretty much at the minute. Um, I I think she's kind of head and shoulders above the rest in terms of consistency across all surfaces. Um, And just in terms of, everything she's got about her game going from mentality to a mix of shots a good serve that's reliable under pressure um she just seems to have a whole game figured out um and she's clearly the leading player on the tour you know the player interestingly probably has pushed her hardest is the player who knocked Osaka out um who's also someone I've got a vested interest in this year in our kind of young players ones to watch I suppose and I suppose it's a bit of a cheat because we all know she's one to watch because she's been up a lot higher before. It was almost a bit of a cheating of the system that she dropped down a bit and now coming back with kind of Darren Cahill. Um, but I thought Anna Samova played really, really well. So I just wanted to kind of add that in. But yeah, that aside, Barty just looks super solid, super strong, super pumped up. And 
you know, we'll talk a lot about the players you could face now. The big question for me about Barty from here on in is pretty much, can she handle it at home? I think that it can often be an underestimated aspect, like trying to win a slam in your home country. Um, and, that you know, she's been here before and it's kind of gone wrong. Was it last year? I think, well, it was the quarterfinals last year where she was comfortably up against Carolina Mukova, the Czech Republic. And then I think there was a bit of a kind of a delay at the end of a set uh, where Mukova got some treatment and then it all just unraveled for Barty. Mm. And, you know, I'm not expecting that to happen now. She's older and wiser, but I still think there's something about Australia in the latter stages that she will still need to feel she aren't, she can answer. Um, and it's going to be tough. Keys next is not an easy draw. Mm. I mean, I suppose it's strange because we talk about Ash Barty as the world number one and for a while she wasn't really respected as world number one, as sometimes happens in the women's game. And then she went out and she won the French Open 2019. She won Wimbledon last year, obviously. Um, And I think we all went, well, okay, now the world number one has a couple of slams to her name and that seems more reasonable. But as you say, there's that defeat to Makova. She lost to Sophia Kenin in Australia at this same stage in the last four two years ago. What do you think it takes to undo this version of Ash Barty? Well, I mean, yeah, the point you make about the number one stuff is really interesting thing to touch upon. I think she was first number one after the French Open, but just after. But that was kind of the first question that came with her, that she, you know, she could win a random slam where everyone falls out the way and take advantage of a bad draw. But could she then handle the pressure? And I think she won a grass title pretty much straight after that to then reach number one. Mm. Um, so she she does keep answering questions. And then the next question was, you know, is she only number one because the tour's been shut down and she's had this really long period at number one that, you know, it's been weird with the rankings freeze and stuff. So what did she do? She came out last season and won comfortably more points than anyone else. I mean, she dominated the tour last year. She probably would have won the French Open if she didn't pull out of that injured. Um, she won Wimbledon remarkably, really. It's arguably under-talked about her kind of coming back from that injury at the French Open managing that and then being ready to win a slam a month later <clears throat> so yeah i mean <laughs> you're now asking me what what does it take to beat this ash party a lot mm. she's a, she's a really complete player she's the most complete player on the tour right now when you consider all those factors i meant before about you know i think the mental side so important like you're asking me do i think naomi osaka can beat ash party on a hardcore absolutely She's more than capable of that of reaching the level. Is Naomi Osaka in the right place to compete week in, week out and dominate the tour like Ash Barty is? No. Barty's in that place where sport is the most important thing to her. It's what she wants. She's focused on it and she's a winner. Nothing, you know, she's a classic Aussie in in the opposite of the sense. Kyrgios is in his own way a classic Aussie. Um, but, <laughs> I think what's I mean. in... What's interesting about Barty is she's a classic sports person. And yeah. and I think that's important to note that she is world number one. She is the top seed. She is the overwhelming favourite to win her home title. But also tennis is is important. Her tennis is important, but tennis as a whole isn't too important to her. She doesn't watch a lot of tennis. She's a big fan of footy, um, what they call uh, Aussie rules in Australia. She plays golf. She obviously played professional cricket. So there's an awful lot there for her that isn't tennis. And I, I think that must provide a tremendous ability to switch off on the off days. Yeah. And 
the thing she's really good at, I think, from the outside, and you can never be quite sure what goes on behind the scenes, but I just feel like she gets everything done very professionally and very well. Like there's mm-hmm. always a plan. What are we working on? How do we get to this next stage? And see, I think she's a very pragmatic person, having spoken to her before and kind of had these conversations. You know, she she's an interesting figure. I know we tell each other off sometimes making it too media focused, but <clears throat> when you're talking about kind of stars of the game, Barty can be a tougher sell as a world number one in the sense that she's not got this kind of glitzy off-court side to her that some of the other top guys do. You know, she she isn't always the most engaging with the media. That's not to say she doesn't answer things nicely and well, but it you, you know what I mean? There's a certain charisma that comes with it. And Barty will quite often say, but I'm not going to tell you that or something. You know, mm-hmm. she keeps everything guarded. And that, that I think is a great strength to her as well as it is, you know, maybe a little bit of a loss to kind of the wider, broader tennis fandom, yeah. if you like wanting to know more about the person behind the racket. But it's who she is. She compartmentalizes everything so well. She's got everything just seems very mapped out and clear for her. And, I think the big question now for Barty, you know, I don't want to sit here and say I think she'll win the title because I, I think she's going to have a tough time getting through Madison Keys, who's playing really, really well. It's going to be tough if it's Fiontech in the final, who we all have spoken time and time again about. And even Danielle Collins, you know, she's someone not to kind of muck around with, really. So it's not mm. going to be easy. But I'm starting to think Barty's going to win every slam. And I wasn't <laughs> sure that was going to happen based on kind of Osaka's dominance on hard courts. But now I think the gap's pretty close either way, even without knowing how good Naomi is on a hard court. Um, I think I think Barty's in a place where she can definitely win all four majors and she can start in her mind practically thinking, could I do it all in a year? Why mm. not? I'm not good. You, you mentioned Madison Keys. Uh, she is her semi-final opponent. She is the only unseeded player left in the women's draw. I mean, or men's, to be honest. Uh, but she's not in that. <laughs> she's famously in the women's draw. Um, she's had quite a run to the semi-finals as well. She beat Sophia Kennan in the first round, which is probably the least upsetting upset. Not that I'm sad, not sad Sophia Kennan, but uh, I think we all called that upset for the number 11 seed. She beat Christian, she beat Wang, although Wang took her to a third set deciding tiebreak. She then, and this is for me the, the best win, uh, knocking out Paolo Bedosa in the fourth round, who was a form player coming in, and she battered her as well, you know, for the loss of just four games. Bedosa didn't play well, she did struggle in the heat, but it was nevertheless a dominant victory. And then she brushed aside Barbara Krajikova, and we know that not many people find that easy. Um, George, Madison Key's strengths, her weaknesses, what, what can people expect to see if maybe they've not watched much of her over the last two weeks? Yeah, I mean, just going briefly back to her draw, I mean, if you if you look at a fourth round in terms of two sets of matches that were going to run into each other, Krachikova versus Azarenka and then Keys versus Bedosa, I mean, I would not be putting more than like a fiver on any of them for absolute mm. fear of losing that. Um, you know, that's all of them are really good players, particularly on hard courts who can um, cause a lot of problems. So it's testament to her that she's had to do it the hard way. She's come, you know, unseeded, but keys is way better than an unseeded player. You know, she's someone I actually picked in my fantasy team. My team was named after her under lock and keys. So I'm kind of hoping she wins the tournament from that perspective uh, in the sense that, 
she was the only person I kind of thought, oh yeah, I kind of really fancy her to upset the odds and you know give it a good go in this. Um, obviously, she won a title leading into this tournament, so she's in good form. But you know, I think Key's story really goes back quite a long, um, a long time back really you know she's someone who's been in the top 10 before she's been in the final of the US Open before and that match was really interesting she lost to Sloane Stevens there I'm pretty sure that was the year that all four semi-finalists were American um, at the US Open I might be wrong but that seems to be ringing a bell Venus was one of the other ones I can't remember them. oh Coco Vanderway Coco Vanderway oh, was Vanderway. the Vanderway there's a name I've not head. heard in a while I can't believe I've just plucked that out of my head That's yeah very good um but but Keys, you know, she's got a big serve, she's got a big forehand, she's got a really good one-strike game tennis. Um, everything's good though. I mean, she's good on all surfaces. She should comfortably be a top ten player. It's just someone that's not quite happened for since then. There were a couple of semi-finals that came the year after at Slams, and then since then, one quarterfinal before this year in the next three years. Now, obviously, there's a little bit of a gap with COVID, but, th- but this is someone who thrive, you know, wants confidence. When she's playing well, she can beat anyone in the world. And I think she'll give Barty a really good game because she seems to be in just such a good kind of, to use a kind of footballer's phrase, in a good moment. She's in a very, a, a very, very good moment. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right, George. And, and it was I was going to say, she, you know, we do talk about the mental side of the game a lot, but it is big. And is one of the reasons that Barty has been so difficult to beat is that she is very even keeled. And it was amazing to see Keys on court, I think after her fourth round win, chatting about her favourite restaurants in Melbourne and how much she loves um, food generally. But she said, oh, this is my favourite Korean place. And, and there's an amazing Mexican place. I don't know the name of it, but if you need directions, I can definitely take you there. And it was just nice to have someone, you know, in what is a non-easy situation, standing on court in the heat, you're knackered. You just want to get in an ice bath and, and get out of the uh, limelight and the sunlight, quite frankly, to be able to open up like that. All right. She's not bearing her soul, but I think it, it makes a difference when players can show some personality like that. And and I actually found the same with Danielle Collins as well. She she is someone who I've not really, I've seen her play a few times, but I've not heard from her very much. And while she does have one of the kind of, most Floridian accents ever. I think people call her Danielle with a Y in it because she's got a proper sort of twang. Again, it's it's nice to have these Americans on the tour who seem to have a lot of personality to them. Yeah, I mean, going on to Keyes' personality a little bit, I mean, I, I interviewed her a while ago now um, and it was kind of specifically about more of her off-court stuff of what she was up to. I, I can't... I'm struggling for the life of me to remember what the hashtag actually is, which is really poor. This was during the pandemic. I think it's like mm. kind, be kind. It's like be kind or kindness. It was talking about kind of how she wants to kind of encourage more kindness within life. It's an organization okay. dedicated to fighting bullying and cyberbullying with a focus on reaching out to high school girls. There you go. I'm pretty sure there is a hashtag they use about something to do with okay. kindness. As well. I'll post it on the account. Like, but yeah. I think that kind of leans into a little bit of the kind of confidence side of things that, you know, I, I I felt like she was talking a little bit about kindness in relation to herself and like how things would affect her and how she wanted to kind of make the world a better place. But actually it to a degree, to a degree, some sport, some athletes you wouldn't imagine ever doing that in the sense that, 
I'm a ruthless killer robot. I'm going to beat everyone in my path. You know, I'm a big competitive animal. I'm thinking like a, a Sharapova type model, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but she she is a really kind of very genuine, nice person, Madison. And I'm not saying that holds you back sometimes, but maybe that killer instinct has been what's missing on court. Mm. Now, there just seems to be this great confidence but my reservation would be against a killer like Barty can she now do it can she really get over the line I'd love it I think it'd be a great story if Keyes actually kind of comes back from you know we're talking about all these new players who are coming through Keyes is still only 26 she's someone who I think should have been winning slams by now Hmm. um now could be that moment where she finally realizes a potential like a Vavrinka maybe a bit of a later winner who can pick up a few slams Get in the mix. Why not? She's good enough. Support for the Love Tennis podcast this week is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They've just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0 across Europe. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 4 million men who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code LOVETENNIS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off at manscaped.com. Just type in Love Tennis. That way you're helping yourself, and you're also helping us a little bit at the podcast. The thing I'm really going for is the Crop Reviver, which describes itself as refreshing ball toner. Um, it's essentially a spritz. So I don't know if you're, you're um, a man who gets a bit swampy, on a on a summer's day, you know, a bit sort of uncomfortable and warm. So that I'm a situation uncomfortable you've... now, James. That we're <laughs> George, we were just talking earlier about how women should be able to talk about their That's own true. problems, like endometriosis, and we should be able to talk about the fact that when it's hot and sweaty, you get hot and sweaty. Um, the refreshing ball toner is just a little pick me up uh, to spritz yourself. And I, honestly, I I came home the other day. I've been on a tube, felt a bit grim. Little spritz. Felt good as new. And and the trimmer, the trimmer, I have to say, George, are you someone who has a trimmer that you use for every bit of your body? I, I'm someone who's very appreciative to have a specified trimmer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so if you head to manscaped.com, you get 20% off and free shipping if you use the code LOVETENNIS. You unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Looking at the other semi-final, we've talked a lot about Iga Shontek and she's made pretty good progress through the draw, um, dropping the odd set here or there. But overall, um, she came from behind to beat Serana Castella, which was a very decent win because Castella was looking extremely composed and very confident and really put her under some pressure, took the first set and I think was a break up in the second as well. And then similarly, Kaya Kanepi, you know, who <laughs> we really should mention because she, after Madison Keys, she was the other kind of remaining complete wild card not a literal wild card although she was outside the top 100 uh, she won't be anymore she took the first set off Iga Shontek as well she's 36 she had been I think it was her seventh quarter final uh, and she she took a set got into a tie break in the second set and then Shontek kind of ran away from it ran away with it but given the disappointment of Annette Contivate going out early on I think nice for Estonia to have something to cheer instead and 
who knows? Maybe Kai Kanepi will hang around for another three years and, and keep surprising us. But there was a... I wish I could remember which player it was, but it might have been... Um, it might have been Camille Georgie. She said that Kai Kanepi's name is always one she looks for in the draw because it's always one she wanted to avoid. Because while she's not the highest ranked player in the world, and I know you, George, call her the Jan Lennon Struff of, <laughs> of draws, um, she is someone who can provide trouble. So, you know, kudos for Shantek for sweeping her aside. But Shantek will now face Danielle Collins, who is what I, who I wanted to talk about very briefly. She knocked out Elise Cornet, another brilliant story. Um, someone who ha- she had, ma- Elise Cornet had match points for a place in a Grand Slam quarterfinal thir- 14 years ago. 13 years ago, I should say. And she against uh, Dinara Safina. And she didn't convert them. She would have played Djokic in the next round, who then interviewed her on court after finally getting into a Grand Slam quarterfinal. If you go onto my Twitter or, or just search on, on Google for the Cornet interview, it's lovely. Um, and credit to Elise Cornet as well, who is not someone, I, again, I think I said this last week, not someone I know a huge amount about, not someone I really remember other than for beating Serena at Wimbledon eight years ago. But she kind of turned it round. You know, Lena Djokic did the sort of, Ladies and gentlemen, give you give it up for Elise Corne. I, you know, clear off court now, love, you're done. And Corne went, no, 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 just a minute. I just want to say how much we all respect you and how brilliant it is. And anyone who knows Yelena Djokic's story, um, she, she published an autobiography a few years ago detailing the kind of physical and emotional abuse she'd gone through at the hands of her father. Um, she's now one of the, you know, a, a very good commentator and um, interviewer in Australia. And it was just one of those moments where I was really impressed by a player looking out with themselves. You know, we often talk about how self-centered individual sports people are because they have to be, but it was a a moment of real self-awareness to be like, Oh, actually there's another person here and they are a person. And, you know, I I think maybe certain interviewers bringing out certain players, but but I don't know. I just really enjoyed Elise Corner. I think she was one of the first to kind of get involved in the where is Peng Shui. Um, I think she was the first player. Probably the first. Um, so she, but but she she lost. She lost. So she lost. You know, <laughs> screw her. Um, <laughs> Danielle Collins into the semi final in her place. Uh, it should be noted, Danielle Collins has had a hell of a twelve months. Um, she struggled very badly with endometriosis, which I think is something that will connect with a lot of women out there. Obviously, not something that I know a huge amount about from a personal level. But she had an operation in April last year to remove a cyst the size of a tennis ball, um, which is a, a sort of appropriate, but also kind of terrifying. Uh, it, she said she had struggled with her periods throughout her life, that she'd basically not been able to been able to train for one week a month. You know, George, for a, a sport that is so relentless in terms of calendar, you know, being out of action for every fourth week, it must have been an absolute nightmare. And I, I guess it's. It's great that she's been th- talking about it really openly as well, because it's one of those things that I think will connect with a lot of people in tennis and outside of tennis. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I did broach the period taboo subject when I, in my uh, halcyon days of tennis reporting, um, spoke. I did did a piece with Heather Watson about it a while ago, actually, um, which, you know. It, it's easy to kind of forget. And I think this is very much the kind of male syndrome, I suppose that we, you know, don't take these things into account, but like actually the kind of levels that go almost to planning 
when you have your period yeah. <laughs> outside of tournaments and trying to peak physically when you've got this natural cycle going on with your body. Um, it's incredibly difficult. And I, I think the wider point on top of that, that we maybe sometimes overlook is just like, you know, you and I go to work all the time. There are days I've just, I'm not that up for it. I'm not that productive. I'll be honest. It just happens, mm. you know, having to be physically ready your whole life to compete you know when your body might you might just feel drained there's not necessarily a reason behind it mm. um and you know all these guys are trying to control what can be total uncontrollables and they do yeah. an amazing yeah. job don't get me wrong but i think it's easy to forget that side of things um so yeah i think collins's story is really great really amazing um and it's great that she's willing to kind of talk about this stuff because the fact that we don't talk about it very often leads us down this path of thinking, oh, they're just tennis players. There's nothing mm. special about it. They just hit a ball really hard. And it's like, well, actually, there's so much more going on about it. Yeah. They're real yeah. life people too who feel the real life same things you and I feel if or our female equivalents. And I think it, it has broken down a few boundaries. I don't like that phrase, but I genuinely do think that it has made it easier for people to talk about it. I wish I could remember which player it was who lost a match recently. It might have been Annette Contivate even. And she came out, She in, in the post-match interview, she just said, oh yeah, well, I was feeling great. And then like, I started PMSing and now I feel like absolute trash and I, I lost, you know. And I, I feel like she wouldn't have said that three years ago, four years ago. And partly I remember that stuff with Heather Watson. She was very open about it. Uh, and a few other women have talked about it a bit more publicly. I mean, I suppose that the best thing for Danielle is that, she can now focus on her tennis and that she's yeah. got a bit more control over her life. Uh, she's, she's, she, she absolutely has got a great game, even if she does sound like a bit of a Valley girl. Um, she is through to the, the semifinals, having beaten uh, Clara Torson, who was in very good form. Uh, she beat Anna Conju, Elise Mertens in the fourth round, which I think went under the radar a little bit uh, as a very decent result. Uh, who should be in the quarterfinals? She beat Cornet, of course. Um, has she got a chance against Shrontek George briefly, knowing that this match is happening in about 12 hours? Got a chance. Um, I think her draw is better, perhaps, than some of the other players who've come this far. I think she's kind of come through a good section of the draw. Um, you know, the reason we picked Magarutha was probably we thought, well, this is a good draw. This she's in the better side and it's not that surprising to me that one of the players who's got to the semi-finals has kind of come through this half of the draw who maybe we wouldn't have had down to do it before um but that said Collins has got a game to trouble anyone she's feisty competitive capable of taking it to Sviontek and Sviontek there are still question marks for me about how she handles her off days. You know, mm. you mentioned that match um, with Castella. You know, there were points of that where you're thinking, oh, God, this is going to go really badly wrong today. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on paper, Sviontek should have too much. She's got all the weapons in the world. And I think, realistically, it's the final we want, isn't it? Sviontek, Barty. Yeah. Um, in terms of we've cried out for time and time again on this podcast for two of you know, in inverted commas, next geners or future dominating sports figures in the women's game to face off in a Grand Slam final. Um, Barty Sviontek would be about as good as we can get from this draw. So I, I hope that's what we get, even 
if selfishly from a fantasy perspective, I want Madison Keys to win the whole thing. Yeah. Um, we shall see. Uh, you'll probably listen to this podcast just hours before those matches, but uh, hopefully uh, you'll still find that useful. George, before Calvin gets here, and because it'll make him too angry to talk about it, we do have to talk about Nick Kyrgios, uh, who's had quite the fortnight. He obviously had that brilliant second-round match against Daniil Medvedev, which he lost. He and uh, Tanasi Kokonakis are through to the semi-finals of the men's doubles. They may be out by the time you hear this because they're playing Zabayos and Grenoyes, uh, third seeds, but they've already beaten Mektic and Pavic. They've already beaten Putz and Venus. They've already beaten Escobar and Behar. They've had some great results. They've had some brilliant occasions on court. It has been thrilling to watch, George, and Nick Kyrgios has been reveling in it by saying, look at the ratings we're pulling. Look how many people are watching us. My energy is unmatched. My overwhelming feeling, George, is that if he thinks he's this popular and successful, why doesn't he do a proper preseason and play a full season of tennis? Because he clearly thinks he is the superstar of the world. Why are you only playing two months a year then? Yeah, the other thing that we've kind of missed out there is that there was actually a big ruckus after this Pavic. Um, oh, I was coming to that. I was coming to that. But I'd like to, I'd like to first talk about why oh, Nick Kyrgios is some sort of superstar when, frankly, I mean, I, I, as Calvin would say, he's a part-time tennis player. And he's right. He's a superstar. He is a superstar. I mean, like this is the thing. You know, we kind of spoke about Barty being the opposite kind of level of Australian. Like, Barty's brilliant for the game in the sense she's brilliant at tennis and she keeps going and she's determined and she's a brilliant ambassador for the sport from that. But if you're asking people in this country who do they know more, Kyrgios or Barty, there's no question who they know more um, despite the accomplishments. Um, Kyrgios cuts through. He's different. He's interesting. He, you know... He hits sides of humanity that often people don't, um, often tennis players don't. Like he's more willing to kind of come out and just say things, be terrible. I think that chimes with people, like the naughtiness on court, the running around celebrating like aeroplane arms and stuff. I, I think that weirdly chimes with people where you just find it kind of like entertaining. You're thinking, man, if I did that, I'd really go for it. I know Calvin would immediately dragged me down be like he only does these things because he's not trying to win and be serious but he's still good fun to watch and I think you know you touched on it there a little bit like is his calling now to become a serial doubles winner is that is that where we lift off because you know the fitness is the problem for singles the talents there he's more than good enough to compete whether the mentality there I don't know I mean the thing is it's a lot easier to play doubles mentally than it is singles because the reality is you've got a mate there and he he really gets on with Kokonakis. It's a kind of fun vibe. It keeps you in that good zone. We've seen it so many times in Kyrgios matches where in singles, he enters that bad zone and he can't look beyond anything else. He throws tantrums. He starts throwing chairs or he starts doing something else ridiculous, like arguing with the umpire and being a baby, basically. It's very entertaining for a time, probably not if you've bought a ticket, but from afar, it's mildly amusing. Um, but in doubles, there's never really been that. He just enjoys the team environment. Same with the Labour Cup. Um, so, yeah, I think it suits him. And he's, I wouldn't say he's the only calling card for the doubles draw, but he's not wrong that it, it brings an interest to the sport and that side of it. And, you know, I always want the best players to play doubles because it's, it's fun. It gets eyes on it. And it's the format most people play. Um, I play far more doubles than I do singles. I've 
think that's very common for most people who play in the UK. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's a great thing to have him in it. And I'd well, then he should be a professional doubles player, and I'd be fine with that. But like, he yeah, has to do it more. I don't think he gets to like him and Tanasi were in a, a press conference saying, you know, oh, tennis has always had a real problem embracing personalities. Like, I don't really know what that means, but you know, he was like, oh, the sport will die if they don't. And I was like, you don't get to stand on a soapbox and say, I'm here to save tennis when you're only there January and February. Like, if you're here to save tennis, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm open. What other, what other tournaments did he play last year? He likes the grass, doesn't he? He turns up for that. But it's, but it's not full-time, though, on any level. And I think um, it just undermines his whole sort of saviour complex. And, yeah, it just frustrates me. As you mentioned, George, and I don't know how much we have to add to this story, uh, he tweeted that after they beat Mektic and Pavic, uh, one of their coach and trainer uh, proceeded to threaten to fight in the players' gym. Uh, tennis is a soft sport, he said, all because I moved and hit them with a tennis ball. Uh, I don't know whether this was necessarily because of something on court or off court or maybe both, but, you know, that, that it doesn't surprise me. Oh, it's it's great. Um, well, it's not great that people are fighting, but it's it's great in the sense of it's interesting. Um, I, I look, players get heated quite often. There've been moments in the past, you know. I always think of Vavrinka and Federer clashing at the ATP Finals, where these post <laughs> post match rows happen when one thing winds up another. Um, yeah, it's 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 all all a bit of a laugh. I mean, at the end of the day. It doesn't look great for Pavic and Mektic, who most people think are comfortably the best players in the world in doubles, um, <laughs> to kind of go out to two Aussies who barely play professionally, as you say, James. So mm. I'm sure they were just there's a little bit of bitterness in there, but um, yeah, look, I, I, I wouldn't get too bogged down in it being uh, anything bad. I just find it quite amusing from afar and. People should just uh, calm down and not fight each other if possible. <laughs> very good. Uh, just finally with you, George, uh, we should talk about the Davis Cup update. Um, a very good story. Uh, Simon Briggs of The Telegraph has kind of been at the forefront of this the whole time. Um, broken today that the Davis Cup format has been rejigged again uh, by our overlords at Cosmos. <laughs> they say they're now going to have group stages in September, 16 teams across four cities, and then a finals week in Abu Dhabi for eight teams in late November. Uh, sounds like there's about $40 million a year going to be put up by the uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, to This is obviously run by Cosmos, who, if anyone doesn't know them, they're the consortium fronted by Gerard Piquet. a lot of other quite high-profile sports people involved in investing in it. They kind of pride themselves on being innovators in entertainment and sports, and I would suggest in that order... George, to me, this looks like a much better format than the current one. But my main concern is this is taking the Davis Cup from one chunk of the calendar to two chunks of the calendar. And therefore, it's going to be even harder to get people to commit to playing in it. Yeah, I think that that remains the big issue with this. And, you know, we've spoken a little bit about kind of where the ATP cup fits in as well and what players will prioritize, you know, the ATP cup makes a bit of sense in terms of it's a good warm up for the Australian open. Um, it's got a good amount of points. Um, it's a, you know, it kind of makes sense to try and play it as a warm up. but the Davis cup, 
which should have the prestige, but is now miles away from what the Davis Cup was, um, is a bit of a pain, really. I mean, playing around Europe in September, jumping out to the Middle East in December, doesn't really um, fit into most players' ideas of uh, what uh, a good season should look like, extending it further. So, yeah, I'm... I'm pretty sceptical about who will play this, but the fact is there's a sh- uh, shitload of money to go with it. So money often talks in these scenarios. So in tennis, it literally uh, always talks. <laughs> like, everyone's for, I mean, just as an example, everyone's like, oh, Wimbledon, it's the most prestigious Grand Slam. They'll never mess with it because it's really prestigious. That's not why they won't mess with it. They won't mess with it because it makes 200 million quid a year. But you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm getting distracted. Uh, George, I think that's probably all we've got time for with you. Thank you very much for joining us, as always. And I'll see you, listener, in part two with Calvin. Welcome to part two of the Love Tennis podcast, where I've got rid of George Belshaw at long, long last and replaced him with a far more impressive Calvin Beton, fresh from court at the, the court, I should say. You've not been in court as well, have you, Calvin? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. Um, we're going to go through the men's draw. It's been a pretty dramatic couple of days, uh, not least this morning. Uh, Daniil Medvedev coming back from two sets down to beat Felix Auger-Aliassime, uh, setting up a semi-final clash with Stefanos Tsitsipas, uh, an age-old rivalry there. The other semi-final, of course, Rafael Nadal up against Matteo Berrettini. Um, I want to start, Calvin, with what has been the kind of controversy of the week, because I know it's something that that will have come up throughout your career, and it's slow play. Uh, and it, for anyone who missed it, uh, Rafa Nadal, of course, was given a time violation during his match against Denis Shapovalov, although, as some people said, not soon enough. Uh, he was given extra time at the beginning, end of the first set. Denis Shapovalov complained repeatedly. At one point, he and Rafa came to the net and had a conversation about it, which actually was quite short-lived. Um, but Carlos Bernardes, the um, chair umpire, was certainly in the spotlight. Uh, at one point, Chipovlov mouthed off that these guys are all corrupt, which, in fairness, a comment that he, he later withdrew as a sort of heat-of-the-moment thing. But he did double down on the fact that he thinks Rafa 100% gets special treatment and that it's unbalanced, that when Rafa took a medical timeout, we also went to the toilet, something that Dennis says he was denied previously. Uh, fair to say he was pretty wound up about it. Calvin, it's not new that Rafa Nadal plays slowly, is it? No, it's been going on a while and it's also been getting out of hand for a while. And I think it's fair that Shapovalov has, has raised uh, the subject. There's been some pretty strange defences of it. I've seen some pretty renowned journalists and some former players almost making out that because he's Rafael Nadal and even things like of what he gives to the game, we shouldn't pick, pull him up on this, which I find an absolute nonsense. There were similar sort of arguments about Djokovic not being vaccinated um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, but this is much less important in the long, big scheme of things. But yeah, it, look, he does it and he does it for a reason. He does it for partly because it's part of his routine. He has to go through this routine, which he has, that there simply isn't time enough to do on a tennis court. He has this routine that takes about 30 seconds and you only get 20, 25 seconds in between a point. Um, and he also does it, I think, because it intimidates opponent. When Whenever Nadal plays, I think more than Federer 
more than Djokovic, more than anyone else. He pulls them into a theatre. He's box office when he plays more than either of those two are. And part of that is the tension he builds. He's a conductor on the court and he builds the points and he knows that any extra time that the crowd are going mad after he's got his big fist pump out, it puts pressure on the opponents and that's why he does it. He claimed, so you're allowed, for people who don't know the rules, you're allowed 120 seconds from the point the ball goes dead at the end of a set to when time gets called uh, at the beginning of the next set. And he made the point afterwards that he had to completely change his clothes on court, which I thought they had stopped you doing because Liam Brody got a um, unsportsmanlike conduct warning during uh, qualifying for taking his shirt off. And then Rafa Nadal basically changed his entire outfit on court and no one seems to bother in front of, you know, many more people with great respect to Brody's. Um, He said, well, I had to change my whole clothes and normally umpires... They look around to see if you're ready before calling time. Now, you know, I can't speak for every single time an umpire has called time. And realistically, Nadal can only speak from his own experience. To me, that would suggest that Nadal is getting special treatment because umpires say, well, is Rafa ready? Okay, now I can call time. Yeah, also, you can get changed. (laughs) I didn't see the incident, actually, but you can get changed in less than two minutes. Yeah. That's not a major problem. If, if you if you need to do it quick, which you do, then he can do that in less than less than 120 seconds. But as with Nadal at these change events, he has his routine. He won't step. He has to step backwards first, and then not step on the lines. He has to take take a drink from one bottle, put the bottle back in exactly the right place with the label turned round. And if you're going to do all those things, you can't get changed in 120 seconds. But that's not Denis Shapovalov's problem. If he was trying to change quickly and he couldn't get it done in that time, then I think there's a fair argument that the umpire gives him a bit of leeway. If he's changing a suit, if he can see he's rushing and he's trying to change his socks, give him a bit of leeway. But you can't, on top of everything else, the points between, the time between the points, the routine that he has to go through, you can't add it all on. And it's been a problem for a while. Mm. I, I thought as well, you know, he said that at the end of the first set, he did that and fine. Actually, I wanted to ask him afterwards, but as with all Rafa Nadal, press conferences it's always very busy um at the beginning of the fifth set he had been off he had had a, a medical timeout or a medical evaluation i should say because he, he seemed to be suffering from heat stroke quite frankly he, he wasn't doing well he said he had a stomach problem um and he came back uh carlos bernardo's called time and because i was watching i i timed it and he calls time and then there's 30 seconds before nadal's butt even leaves the seat and he's he's got the he's got the ice towel on. He's like mainlining those little air conditioning boxes. You know, he was struggling physically, and I don't think that's fair on Denis Shapovalov. If if anyone else, I mean, I don't know whether anyone else would have got the same treatment. But look, the rules exist for a reason, and tennis is a physical game. You shouldn't be able to just take extra time because you're tired. You know, if if you were playing football. You couldn't say, oh, actually, can you just wait a minute to take this corner because our centre-half is blowing out his arse and, and we could do with 30 seconds to get ready? You, you couldn't do that. Yeah, I also think that because the, the the umpires know the players as well and Nadal is famously a really sound bloke. Everyone gets on with him. He's really nice and I think he looks after the umpires. He's always polite to them. They're less likely to sort of have a word with him in that situation. I don't think Fabio Fognini would have got the same discrepancy, for example, <laughs> um, or, or Nick Kyrgios or, or someone like that. But yeah, yeah, it, it's they know it's the Dow. But I even think he, he does it as part of the theatre. Like I say, it's it's, mm. it's all part of the Nadal thing. It's like the same as getting getting the fist pump out at 
one all 1530. Yeah. He knows what it's doing. He doesn't do that to fire himself up. He knows what that does to the crowd. He knows what the, the crowd does to the opponent. And that's why he does it. Do and I also he... don't, i tell you something else. I don't think Nadal would have done that against Roger Federer. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have done the same thing. He might take a few liberties between points, but then the umpire, I don't think the umpire would have gained, gave him the same leeway against Ro- Roger Federer either or against Novak Djokovic. Mm. It's going to be, I'll tell you the problem is if they play in the final, if he plays Medvedev, because Medvedev will have a word and Medvedev plays fast. Yeah. Medvedev isn't waiting for anybody. Well, it'll be equally be a problem if he plays City Pass in the final because that match could take forever. I mean, you know, it's not as though Nadal's the only slow player on tour by any stretch. City passes, pay, I mean, he was running up to the service line the other day and just, he wasn't even hitting a proper serve. He was basically hitting it on the happy Gilmoring from the service line because he was so behind the clock. Um, to kind of broaden this out a little bit, do you think do you think this is a bit pearl clutching to say that people playing like Nadal damages the sport? I mean, not obviously everything else that Nadal does does not damage the sport. But if everyone played like him, you know, the first two sets against Shapovalov, he won six three six four. Only four games went to juice. There were two breaks of serve total, and it took a hundred minutes. Like that, that shouldn't be how long a tennis match takes, should it? I don't think it has effect on the viewers. I think quite the opposite. When Nadal plays, he's still, like I said, he's box office. When he's on, he's compelling viewing. When you watch him, everything about him, he has a he has he has this sort of competitive charisma that and and I think I really think that's what it is. That there have been other people who do it in, in darts. There's Michael Van Gerwen in tennis, there's there's John McEnroe. They bend the situation to their personality. And I think that's what Nadal does, and that includes the viewers. Now, that doesn't mean he should be allowed to bend the rules either. And I think if someone else was doing it, if, say, people don't know who Sitsipas is at home, if Sitsipas starts doing it and you've got a casual viewer, like, for example, if my dad's watching it, he'll get bored and he'll turn over. Mm. If it's Nadal doing it, probably not. But I don't think that gives him an excuse either. And that's why I think it'll be interesting as well, because, like, you know, Shapovalov plays pretty quick. Uh, I was watching Felix today. He actually doesn't play that quick, but, you know, he's probably somewhere in between and he's never that bothered by the clock. And, and you know, Tsitsipas, I think, is maybe the exception in that generation as someone who does play slow. And there are reasons for that. And, and we'll come on to that in a moment. Um, but I, I would hate to see everyone come up and take an extra 30 seconds at every changeover, push the clock all the time. And, and because I do think that tennis matches that go on regularly for four and a half hours is not great for the sport in terms of a product to sell to broadcasters you know the whole thing anyone who's lit who's from england will know about the hundred in cricket this summer one of them or last summer i should say one of the main things of that was getting a product that fits into a two-hour time slot tennis doesn't really have on the main stage something that does that and i think if all matches started to be an hour every set even if they don't go to a tie break it would concern me but that's maybe a, a larger conversation. Um, Nadal, anyway, is into the semi-finals. No matter how long it takes him, he's. I mean, this matchup against Matteo Berrettini, Calvin, that that forehand into Berrettini's backhand, it, it's not a particularly good matchup for the Italian, is it? No, they played each other at the U.S. Open. Um, I'm gonna say two or three years ago. Um, I've lost all sense of time since COVID came. So I don't, it might have been 2019. It was. Yeah. Um, and I remember a mate of mine who enjoys a bet um, was asking me my opinions on the matches. And 
I said at the time that I didn't think Berrettini had a chance against Nadal. Now, Berrettini is a better player, but I still think the same problem is going to come around that he's going to run the old Federer game plan that uh, that gives him a winning record over Federer. Mm. Um, as it happens, Federer started beating Nadal over the last five years because he started hitting drive backhands down the line for winners. Mm. But I don't think Berrettini can do that. Um and I said to, I was talking with Mark Petchy the other day on Twitter, and I said to him that I think if Berrettini had a seven out of 10 backhand at the elite level, I think he would, we'd be looking at somebody who wins somewhere between five and seven slams. Mm. But as it is at the elite level, his backhand is somewhere between four and five out of 10. Mm. And I think that's the problem. And Nadal will that could be a really boring match because the match will be Nadal just hitting forehands up to Berrettini's uh, backhand yeah and I suppose the thing is that he will get to a lot of quarterfinals of slams because he's got enough weapons to beat guys between 20 and 80 in the world but anyone like you know we were talking earlier um, in the WhatsApp group about Medvedev's backhand and you know any of those guys in the top 10 maybe Rublev accepted are good enough to pin him down on that backhand wing. So does that mean that for Berrettini to be someone who does go and win two or three slams even, is he going to have to basically do a Federer and find a way to hit that drive backhand? Um, I'd say Berrettini's a strange player in that he has, I think he probably has the two biggest weapons in the top 20 in his serve and his forehand. He also has the biggest weakness in his backhand. Hmm. Um, And the only player that I've seen similar to that is Andy Roddick. And Erotic was in the same boat and the same two shots and the same weakness. You could argue that um, Zverev's volleys are weaker, but <laughs> he can hide them. He doesn't have to play them all the time. As I've said, Zverev has the worst volleys in the top 200. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Zverev's second serve, you could also maybe argue is a weakness, but he seems to have got that a lot better. It's not affecting things so much. But yeah, I think if, if Berrettini serves well, um, it could get interesting. But I think he's going to have to serve at about 73% first serves-ish. Over 70% first serves um, to take that match close. It's a shame, really, because, you know, if Nadal was on the bottom half of the draw, uh, and it's massive if, Medvedev would be a great semi-final. And I'm kind of torn. I don't know how you feel about it, Calvin, but I, I sort of want Rafa to win because, as you say, he's a nice bloke. Um, he, he's obviously worked incredibly hard to get back. Like he, he has been talking over this fortnight about how as recently as six weeks ago, he really didn't know whether he would even come back on the tour. Now that might be hyperbole, but I, when he says it, I'm like minded to believe it because it was obviously, this is a foot problem he's had all his life. And I think this time he thought, well, this might well be it. And then he got COVID. And so he is kind of in the unknown, but equally I don't want, like all my friends to say, oh, Australian Open was it? Oh yeah, Nadal won it. Did he? What a surprise! Do you know what I mean? He's such a strange player because again, we're back at this situation where, look, you look at Andy Murray comes back from a a, a more serious injury, to be fair, and it, it's still we don't know. He's still miles off being mm. able to compete. Uh, Federer came back last year from a medium to long term injury and was miles off. Uh, Stan Wawrinka will be the same. Del Potro will be the same. Nadal repeatedly comes back from these medium to long-term injuries, winning Grand Slams. Yeah, like there's there's no build-up period, and it's <laughs> nobody has ever done this. It's it's phenomenal, like what he can do. Yeah. Um, 
he's also, it's a strange match because I think, I've not looked at the stats, but I'm going to say these two are the two players in the top 10 with the worst record against other top 10 players, Veratini <laughs> and Nadal. So, I mean, one of them is going to finally get a win against... Oh, Zverev, surely. Zverev, um, surely he's got the worst. No, because Zverev on, on the tour, his record is fantastic. It'd be, yeah. it'd be, I mean, you think he's won four of the last five against Djokovic. Yeah, that's true. He beats Berrettini regularly. I think Zverev's record all round on the tour is, is really good, but it's in slams that goes to pieces, whereas Berrettini and Nadal, they, over the last two, three years, their records against other top 10 players are not good. Mm. Alternatively, Nadal's... There's nobody who chews up players ranked 10 to 30 better than Nadal does. Yeah. He, he hardly ever loses to them in majors. Yeah. Um, you look at his record. I can't, you can't think of many shocks with Nadal. The slams he doesn't win, he tends to lose to Federer, uh, he t- Federer, Wawrinka, Djokovic. Uh, it's something we were talking about the other week, actually, early rounds. And we, I think we were talking about in the context of Murray needing to get through the early rounds without dropping sets and the rest of it. And I said how, how much of a monster Djokovic has become at it especially in those early rounds. Nadal has become this monster in the middle rounds, you know, as you say, third, fourth, quarterfinals, where those guys just can't get near him. And even when they do get near him, you know, like Shapovalov did, he just, you know, he came back out for that fifth set against Dennis, having lost two sets in a row and immediately broke serve. And it's like a sort and Shapovalov's level went and he started missing the backhand, which had been, by his standards, extremely good all day. And I think it is a mentality thing as much as anything else. Yeah, it 100% is. And he, he still has this. The reason why he chews those players up is he's such a brilliant starter. He never loses serve in the first first one or two service games that he plays. And I don't know anyone else who does that. Even Djokovic, who's the best match player of all time, he'll occasionally come out and lose his first service game. Mm. Nadal is, is phenomenal how he does it. And I don't know how he does it. And I wish I could put that into some of the players I coach. <laughs> it, it, you feel under pressure the whole time. And I think that's part of the theatre, which I speak about, that mm. it, it's constant pressure when you're playing against Nadal. Yeah. And he's got, I quite fancy him to win the tournament now. I've got to yeah. be honest. I think he might beat Medvedev if he gets to, if he gets to play him. Well, Daniil Medvedev, of course, uh, will take on Stefano Sitipas in the other semi-final. I think that's going to be the night match because they're playing in the, the latter. Of course, the schedule for the Australian Open has changed slightly this year. The women's semifinals are both on the Thursday night. Um, the men's semifinals are both on Friday with one during the day. Nadal, again, playing uh, in the heat of the day. Interestingly, I think Nadal's four, last four losses at the Australian Open have all been at night. And I don't think it's coincidence he's playing during the day. I mean, we know that these players can put in requests to play at certain times a day, and I'm sure that's what he's been doing. Um, Medvedev has come through a relatively straightforward draw. He obviously dropped that set to Nick Kyrgios. Uh, he beat Botev van der Zandschloop, uh, the ever-tricky, or in Medvedev's words, so boring Maxime Cressy, uh, dropping a tie-break to the serve volleyer. And then a, a really great five-setter with Felix auger The Canadian took a two-set lead. Uh, and was then, I think, a mini break up in the tie break when it started raining in sort of Tim Henman, Goran Ivanisevic style uh, scenes. And, and Medvedev never looked back. He won 6 7, 3 6, 7 6, 7 5, 6 4. Um, I mean, Calvin, I, I was minded of a comment I made to you the other week that I really don't want Felix Auger Aliassime to have a Grigor Dimitrov of a career. 
But this match is exactly why I'm worried that that might happen. Yeah. Um, I thought he'd win today, and I even thought he'd win when it went two sets all. Because he's one thing he's very good at, he doesn't let setbacks bother him too much. Um, he's, if you look through his career, he, he loses sets after he's been close to winning matches and then comes back to win them. I still think there's a question over his belief, really, at the very, very elite level. And there's still a couple of holes in his game that that bother me, the same ones. I think the thing with Felix is he's been so good from so young that at every stage in his development, he's been the best player, right from being under 12s, under 14s, under 60. He won, he won his first challenger when he was 16, so he's already the best player basically the best player on the challenger tour when he was 16 17 then he came into to the sort of atp lower down and he was winning matches against players who he was just better than and i think where we've seen he's kind of struggled when he's played in invert commas better players um and medvedev is is that type of player you're gonna have to beat him and i think that's where he came a little bit unstuck that you know against medvedev when it comes down to it right at the end you're going to have to hit winners past him. And he's hard to hit winners past. And I think the thing with, with Felix is he's a he's got big shots. I'm not sure how many real knockout blow shots he's got when his serve comes back. Mm. Um, there's a decent chance we're going to be talking about Daniil Medvedev as the Australian Open champion, you know, maybe a, a 50-50 chance at this point. But uh, as we've kind of discussed a little bit, it's hard to explain to people why he's so good. I think you've come up with quite a good analogy to explain that. Yeah, he's he's kind of like a boxer, uh, a heavyweight boxer, I would say, who he doesn't have one knockout punch, but he has a sledgehammer of a jab. And without knocking somebody out, if you if anybody who watches boxing knows it, a, a jab, if you keep getting hit in the face with a jab over the space of four or five rounds, you'll eventually wear down and it will knock you down eventually, or or you'll you'll drop your guard and you're going to get knocked down. And Medvedev, he doesn't have his service huge, let's be honest, but it's not the most accurate. He, he throws it up and like half his aces or half his big serves land in the land way of a fair bit from the lines. He's not mm. accurate with, but he's so heavy. But in terms of his ground strokes, he hits this length and heaviness that just comes back and that the, the players can't get anything on it. It's knocking them back gradually and it just wears them down. And it's almost a combination of heaviness and mundanity. And, and it just starts frustrating them that I think he, he, he bleeds people's players of their souls and they just stop <laughs> believing in, in mid rally. Like, what can you do? And there was one rally today where, where Felix was towards the end of the match. I think he was when he was a, I think it's when he served, he ended up winning the game. It was the three, the five, three game to Medvedev and, and he held and he lost the point though, but Felix was drilling the ball. He was, he was kind of in charge of the point, but Medvedev just kept getting there, kept hitting to a length. And then eventually he gets on top a little bit, hits another three or four length balls and then polishes him off. And it's just, it really soul destroying for the opponents and how he keeps managing to do it. And I, I thought it was quite cheeky him calling Cressy boring because I know that Sitsipas has labeled the exact same thing at Medvedev, hasn't yeah. it? Uh, yeah it's it's a good analogy that that boxer one because but it's interesting because one of the things that maybe not a trademark of Medvedev because it has become a kind of fashion is that he is generally very deep he does often play a long way behind the baseline um especially in return games and you know what I think is interesting is that he's still maybe maybe that gives him a lot of time 
and maybe that's why he's able to get such a good strike on it. He's also, I guess, got tremendous movement, and it, he he's a very sort of. I mean, is he six foot six or is he six foot four? He's one of the two. I think I he's six know. foot six. Yeah, and, but but also most of that is arms, as far as I can tell. He's he's he really is genuinely a unique player. There's not he's a one of one. There's not another player who's been like him. And you see a lot of this like in, in basketball, they call these players unicorns. Who <laughs> there's no other players like them. That that and if you were to talk about any of the other players, there are players who kind of play like them. Like Djokovic, is, Djokovic and Nadal are kind of upgraded versions of Bjorn Borg, right. like that kind of thing. Whereas there's never been before Medvedev, there's never been a six foot six player who has a huge serve and who moves as well as he does and whose strength is not missing from the baseline. There, mm. there just hasn't been one. Um, yeah. and, and who gets around the court as well as he does. And as I said earlier in, in the WhatsApp group, one of the reasons he gets such a good hit on all the balls is he gets behind the ball. If you watch him, he runs a lot, but he's never hitting on the run. He stopped. He gets it. We call it in tennis, we call it stop, stop, where you want to stop before you hit the ball. You beat the bounce. He's, he set himself behind it which is why also he doesn't make many errors because a lot of unforced errors come from players hitting when they're on the run because they're off balance so or he's on balance all the time because he's got such long legs and arms that he can mm. do that it's funny i had a moment today because i was streaming it on my laptop and uh the stream froze sort of um, about halfway through felix's ball flight after he'd hit a cross-court forehand and i thought it froze and I thought, okay, I'll play a little game of what happens next to myself. And I think, well, I think Medvedev's going to be on the run. And he's going to have to hit that sort of slightly desperate squash shot down the line, just, you know, try and hit the the glory winner. And I thought, well, there's, cause there's no way he can just get there and, and ping it back. And, and then I got one sort of buffer and it was him with his two feet flat on the ground, effectively swinging through the ball. It's hard to know how to beat him. One thing I'd like to put to you that I think potentially someone like, Mats Volander said this week, um, and Mats is very good at talking a lot, um, uh, among other things. Uh, he said, "Oh, I worry watching him." It was against Cressy. He said he wasn't he wasn't prepared to come up against Cressy. He was sitting very deep and having to do much more running than other people would to beat Maxime Cressy. And he said, "I worry that he's going to do a heck of a lot of running in his career, and that's going to catch up with him." which reminded me a little bit of what people used to say about Nadal. They said he could never possibly have a 20-year career, and then he did. Is there anything in that? A guy who runs as much as he does can't possibly run all this time? I don't think it's the running so much. that It's not wear and tear. It, any player in any sport who is that tall, they tend not to have long careers, um, if you look at it. Um, once you go past the kind of six-foot-three, six-foot-four range, it's to, they just sort of start getting niggly injuries. Mm. And I think this is when people talk about uh, Del Potro with his injuries, and you can say he's been unlucky, and certainly the last one's unlucky because tripping up and banging your knee into a net post is unlucky. Mm. But it's not unlucky because the thing, what his greatest strength is his size and his long limbs, and the things that have broken down are his size and his long limbs. Yeah. And I think Medvedev, he has, he's been pretty sound with injuries to be fair but he, again you never know because he might just be an outlier in that degree as well but mm. players who are that tall even footballers you look at it they tend to get injured a lot yeah yeah and he you, you look at him and you think the physics don't quite work like how can he possibly 
be okay for a long period of time just just from the, the very looking at him you know the eyeball test but as no, you nothing say nothing makes sense about him because like his <laughs> shots everyone talks about how his shots are like a mate of mine who he enjoys his tennis but he doesn't know much about it and he's like how's this guy even winning matches he's terrible and <laughs> his shots aesthetically his shots are not pretty are they they're pretty no. ugly you even see his you backhand always... he kind of he kind of punches over his backhand and it's it's all wrong and I always think you see a lot of his racket when he when he moves it. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Like some people it's quite a compact swing. With Medvedev, it's everywhere. You see so much of the racket as it's sort of swishing around. It, it it's yeah. bizarre, you're right. I, but you know what? He's a good player, he's gonna win a lot of tournaments, and he's a good talker. And and you know, almost every Daniil Medvedev interview, you get some classic line because He's just clearly bonkers. Like, he's completely insane. And I don't think we should complain about that. Nick Kyrgios this week says that tennis struggles to accept personalities. I think what he meant was tennis struggles to accept his personality because everyone's very happy with Daniil Medvedev being a complete lunatic. Um, it's just that he actually wins tennis matches. It's not Tennis doesn't struggle to accept Nick Kyrgios' personality. It's never there to accept. <laughs> like, you've got to offer it for something to be accepted. And yeah. like this is what cracks me up a bit with Kyrgios, right? Because, look, he's a phenomenal tennis player and I think he's doing great stuff for the doubles now, but who doesn't want Nick Kyrgios around at this stage? Like, tell yeah. me that every single tournament, like, it's all right saying tennis doesn't want him, right? Every single tournament wants Nick Kyrgios there because he because of what he is. So yeah. he just keeps saying that. But anyway, back, back to Medvedev. I actually... I. I my favourite Medvedev period was that first US Open, the 2019, when he was kind of like the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, he's a bit of a shit house, and he's kind of like become a bit more of a fan favourite now. I I was hoping it would kick off a bit more with um, with Kyrgios, but I think they're mates, actually. They're the same yeah. birth year. So right. I think they they actually get on all right. Um, and I would quite like to see it happen again with um, uh, if he plays Nadal, because I think that the crowd will want Nadal to win. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen Djokovic before he went nuts with this vaccine thing because the Australian crowd do like him. I yeah. think that would have been a great final because they would have turned against Medvedev and I think that's when we see the best of him. Um, yeah. But is look, over the last 18 months, I was thinking this morning, the matches he's lost, they all tend to be the matches that he beats himself in mm. where he goes a bit nuts, but he's he's tough to beat. He really is tough to beat now. Yeah, um, he is going to play someone who will get under his skin and vice versa in Stefanos Tsitsipas in the semi-final. They they don't get on famously. They they had a big spat out in uh, Miami in the heat there. Um, but who who is who is Tsitsipas's mate? Like, does he have yeah. any? I don't. I couldn't name one in tennis. Petros. Yeah, and one. I mean, his conveyor belt of brothers that they keep churning <laughs> out um, in Greece. I mean, he play. He he doesn't even really seem to get on with um Michael Pevlo. I can't say his name. Pevlo Pe- Pe- Pevlorakis. Yeah, he doesn't even seem to get on with him. And by all accounts, he's a really nice guy. But, um, but I know Mike Pevlorakis, and he's a top guy. Um, yeah. and um, I don't think they don't get on. I think um Mike is a bit um suspicious of how the Sitsipas brothers keep getting things from the Greek Federation that other players may not. 
I see. Okay. Um, well, one thing he won't get from the Greek Federation is any help against Daniil Medvedev. Uh, he absolutely mullered Yannick Sinner. 6-3, 6-4, 6-2 in the quarterfinal. Looked like a man who was in a hurry. Um, to quote Catherine Whitaker, who works on a rival podcast, which I'm sure some of you will listen to, uh, he looked like a man who's got an emo tweet scheduled and doesn't want to be on court when it goes out. Um I, I'm, I might start introducing a Stefanos Tsitsipas dreadful tweet of the week because anyone who follows him on Twitter will know it's it's like your sort of boomer aunt on Facebook. With ugh, the, the worst one was literally while he was playing a match, he said he tweeted, this is the Mondayest Monday that ever Mondayed. Like he was literally mid-match. And his account, which has obviously been scheduled to do it anyway, has he got a chance of, forget his Twitter, has he got a chance of beating Medvedev? He's got a chance, yeah. I think he won the last time they played after Medvedev had beat him. Maybe not the last time. He's, he definitely won one. Medvedev beat him like every time. And then he, uh, since he passed, won one. Um, and then I think maybe Medvedev might have won the last one. Um, six and two Tsitsipas has won two of the last three beat him at Roland Garros obviously in the quarters and then beat him at the World Tour Finals three years ago but they've not played a lot yeah the World Tour Finals one was where Medvedev I think he was done I wouldn't read a great deal into that and the Roland Garros one he doesn't he doesn't particularly love the clay does he Um, but I think he's I think Medvedev thinks he's got his number Um, Tsitsipas is a phenomenal talent he could win for sure Um, it's kind of a nice, I don't know why he struggles so much against him. It's kind of a nice matchup because Medvedev hits kind of a flat ball and that doesn't overly bother City Pass's backhand. Um, he doesn't hit, as I've said there, he doesn't hit a huge ball, Medvedev, um, compared to some. But so you think he gets a bit more time on his backhand to hit it. But I think he just, he bores him with his, with the mundanity. He can't get, can't get near him. Um, Stefano Tsitsipas got done for coaching again this week which he I mean obviously happens pretty regularly Um, it's something that we've talked about before I know but it it particularly frustrated me on this occasion because chair umpire Damien Dumasoir who look, I think there are a lot of good umpires but he seems like one of the better ones he's he's a bit of a, a match manager if you like and it was the fifth set of that brilliant match against Taylor Fritz and Apostolos Stefanos' father had already been done for coaching. And, you know, Damien Dumasoir, he, he, his mic is on, but not to the stadium. And he turns down to Stefanos and says, look, this is a great match. I really don't want to have to take a serve off you. Can you, can you tell him to be quiet? And Stefanos kind of walks over and waves his racket at him. And, you know, someone has to poke Apostolos to stop looking at his phone and look up because his son's trying to tell him something. I mean... <laughs> It's amazing because he's got a mask on, so like you can barely tell what he's saying anyway. But it, how has he not just kicked him out of his box yet? Like if this is going to start costing him points and serves and and potentially games or worse, how has he not just kicked him out of his box? I mean, I think I'm a bit torn on this. I think coaching should be allowed anyway, um, especially that kind of stuff. I don't think there's any problem with that. I don't. There's no other sport in the world where you can't just shout advice and that's the weird thing with with tennis that anyone in the crowd so city pass's dad could tell somebody in the crowd what to shout at city pass and there's no problem yeah but if it's <laughs> him who coach i mean city pass could equally go he's not my coach he's my dad i wonder what how that would stand with it and then it would in theory that would be fine yeah um but 
while it's there in the rules, he gets done every single match all the time. And it's this is what annoys me about City Pass more than anything. He should be a superstar. You look at the way he looks, the way he plays, and he's content. Him and his family's continuing balding up of this by just being. They're not like massive dickheads or anything, are they? But just sort of a bit unlikable. Yeah. Um, by doing this sort of thing, the toilet breaks. His dad just—I I don't even know like what his dad's telling him. Like, I don't know what can change in this type of situation. But you know what? What would what would Sessanov Sitsipas's dad? be able to tell him in the heat of the moment that Stefanos hasn't figured out already. Yeah. It's not like, you know, hit it to his backhand or something. It's I, it's just just a nonsense, yeah. But um on the on the toilet breaks, Rafa Nadal was very funny this week. He um he was getting asked about his own ruled kind of flirtations which we've just talked about and he said um oh you know this is I've looked through the rules and I think I'm doing things okay. Um, I think we had a thing with toilet breaks with maybe Stefanos. I don't know. I wasn't on tour, so I don't really know. Like, you know, pleading innocence, like he <laughs> like he doesn't really follow tennis when he's not playing. <laughs> it really made me giggle. Um, Especially seen as it was involving probably Nadal's best mate on the tour, which is Murray. Yeah, so, exactly. like, like they haven't talked about it. Um, which, yeah. I think just before we move on, I, I sort of a little mention on uh, Sinner, who, again, we've got to this situation where I think he's... He's really struggles against the top guys, doesn't he? He's not, mm. um, as we said at the start of the year, it's, it looks a bit one-dimensional when it gets there. He's really cleaning up everyone else. But yeah. against the top eight, they've all got his number. And I think they know that he's going to play the exact same. He doesn't have a plan B and he doesn't move that well. Yeah. He, he Someone said something interesting on Twitter, and I apologise for not crediting them because I can't remember who it was, um, where they said when someone asks me to kind of elaborate on the game style of Yannick Sinner, I can't do it with confidence because I don't really know what it is. You know, he's like a very clean ball striker from the back of the court. But beyond that, what do we, you know, he doesn't seem to have an identity as a tennis player, for want of a better phrase. I think he has an identity. I could tell you exactly how he plays. He leathers it. He absolutely <laughs> leathers everything. And it's funny because I was talking, I've been down at Loughborough today at the British 25Ks and famously Luke, who I coach, um, lost to Sinner in Tunisia, um, I think 2019 maybe. Right. And he was 5-2 up in the third set and lost. And then uh, Sinner won the next gen the, at the end of that year. The year before that, Luke played Karatsev also in Tunisia. So we were joking that like players are just wanting to play Luke Johnson in Tunisia because it's <laughs> the career maker. The pathway but, to greatness. Yeah, but the guys who I was talking to were saying that it's like Sinner was around the futures for a while and they just knew him as this lad who just absolutely leathered everything. Mm. And a lot of the time it's just hitting the back fence. And his coach was just like, yep, yep, keep doing it. And then they've just started going in. Yeah. <laughs> and they said similarly, actually, like one of the British coaches who was around Dominic team when he was coming on. And you notice that team has this sort of very distinctive high elbow when he hits his forehand. Yeah. And they said that like one of the lads said that he was coaching the player who team was practicing with practice set. And he said teams hit this forehand and it's literally it's hit the back fence and still rising when he's hit it. And the coach goes, yes, yes. Great elbow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it must've been Gunter Bresnik. It must have been. Like, right? <laughs> Don't mind that it's hit the back fence, still rising, because that, that elbow is right in the right place. Don't be so results-orientated, Calvin. Yeah, yeah? yeah that's it. Um, turns out so, he's probably right. 
<laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, we, we are running out of time, so I'm going to ask you for a quick prediction for each of the semi-finals and then the resultant final that you've chosen. Berrettini, um, Nadal. I think Nadal wins that in three or four. Mm. And Medvedev, Tsitsipas? Uh, again, Medvedev in four or five. I and think. then the, the final, Nadal, Medvedev. I think Nadal wins because I think Medvedev, he's, Nadal's the player he struggled with the most. He's, he, he's, he's been, he always gets close to him. And I think then he doubts him. I think he's the one player who he doubts himself against. He had the one, famously the, the one at the 0-2 in the year-end finals where he was, I think he might be 5-1 up in the third mm. um, and ended up losing. I think he's beaten Nadal since then, but I still think Nadal... I, th- I think there's going to be a bit more on Nadal here because I think nobody thought that Nadal was going to end up on 21 first. And knowing Nadal now, he thinks this might be... Not only that, though, James, Nadal wins this and he wins the French. Who's yeah. catching him then? It's a big gap at that point, isn't it? Yeah, because then you think then he might fancy well, I can win the French the year after. And then that puts him 23. And I don't think Djokovic is getting 23, you know. <laughs> I, t- I don't think... I thought he might get 21... I think I might get 21 or 22 and that'd be it. But this was one of the ones I thought was the 21 or the 22. Yeah, the the whole could sh- end up with the most of the lot and I wouldn't have picked it. Unbelievable. I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking Medvedev might win the final because I don't know. I, Nadal's a physical monster, but I don't know where he is at the moment. Like yeah. I, he was in real trouble against Shapovalov. Like, and it wasn't an injury as far as I can tell. It was just like, it's really hot. And I'm not fit enough for this. And he said afterwards, he said, Oh, I didn't practice for this. And like he's he didn't train. What day is it today? Wednesday. He didn't train today. Like right. he, he basically didn't. I think he still hit, but hardly. And I think that's a concession that he is just running on like muscle memory. And he might look, he might be Berrettini in like two and a half hours and then be super fresh. But yeah. I, I do think if it's like five sets in the final, all right, it'll be at, and it, it'll be at night when famously Nadal doesn't like playing at night in Australia. I think, yeah, I mean, I think if he, if that would be surprising if Nadal has not trained and, and if he hit, I mean, this is somebody who doesn't just go out and have a casual hit. Yeah. It's, again, <laughs> it's theatre. And the, the lads who've practiced with him said he comes out, the first ball is a match play ball. He comes out <laughs> and he rips from the start. Um, so if if he's gone out and just smoothed a few round for 15 minutes, then, I'd, yeah, I'd start having questions about my prediction there. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for thanks for listening as always do leave us a rating or a review Um, follow us on at love tennis pod and we'll be back with a result from that final next week sports social podcast network it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.